one and all. I am Joseph Cotto. Joining me tonight is Luke Ford. Luke, how's it going? Good, Joseph. Good to talk to you again. Very glad to chat with you. Yeah, it's been a long time since we last conversed, and uh, it's very good to be uh, to be talking once more. Uh, there's no shortage of stuff going on out there, so uh, I think that we will have a very uh, interesting conversation, to say the least. But uh, anyway, I, I mean, it's uh, I, I'm trying to even figure out where to begin with this. But uh, the GOP is. I mean, it's. Uh, Wow, I suddenly lost you. You suddenly froze. Okay. It likely. There, sorry, you uh, were frozen there for 30 seconds, so. Yeah, that happens. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's just something to do with my uh, my computer. The internet connection is fine, but it's just sometimes that uh, that comes up. But anyway, uh, the, the GOP seems to be doing, in case it wasn't heard before what I was saying, not the greatest, but not the worst. Uh, and uh, it has basically uh, dealt with a lot of self-inflicted wounds in this election cycle. Bad candidates, obviously the abortion issue coming to the forefront, uh, even though obviously economic issues now, it's safe to say, are of more importance to more voters than abortion-related issues are. Uh, but the midterms are coming. They are a month away. And uh, the GOP, given how badly the country's doing economically and how unpopular the Biden administration is, the GOP GOP certainly should be in more of a, a, a routing. It, it should be on course to route the Democrats, whereas it seems to be on course to have a modest victory. Luke, anything to say starting out tonight? Yeah, I, I don't understand that the GOP doesn't make crime the, the number one focus and just the the dissolution of of our, our cities under under the just massive tidal wave of crime that's broken out since the summer of George and then illegal immigration. It seems like those are two very solid vote winners and uh, inflation number three. But the GOP has chosen to make inflation the the number one issue. And I, I think crime, that, that's my sense of things, that the country is, is spiraling out of control with the, this massive murder, rape and rampage crisis that has spilled out into traffic fatalities, pedestrian deaths, you know, all sorts of horrible statistics are spiraling upwards since the, the summer of George. I would think the GOP would make that the their number one issue. You know, you bring up the summer of George and not to get too far into the past, but it is interesting because the George Floyd thing basically was like a religious sacrament. You saw people creating shrines to him, uh, people engaging in vigils, doing all these things that people would do basically to venerate a persecuted saint. And the obviously uh, violent nature of the summer of George uh, can't be overlooked, but there was like a bizarre spiritual component to it as well for a lot of people on the left. It's like he became the patron saint of wokeism, which I do consider to be a, uh, an organized religion, uh, just not a supernatural one, even though it does bleed into organized supernatural religions in the United States, most notably Christianity, where every major Christian denomination has been captured by the woke folks to some degree. Uh, Luke, anyway, uh, anything to say about this spiritual element of wokeism? Yeah, I think much of life is a spiral. I mean, you're either spiraling up or you're spiraling down. And so to be a liberal is to be perpetually distressed by ever-new manifestations of ignorance and bigotry. 
And so once you take care of one manifestation of ignorance and bigotry by making it completely unacceptable to display publicly, then your job's not done. Now you need to move on to new manifestations of ignorance and bigotry. It's just an eternal cycle, just like for conservatives, they have an eternal cycle of a fixation on disorder and contagion. So there will never be a point of order and purity where conservatives will say, ah, we're we're good now. We can just uh, go on with our lives. So I think we're all stuck in in spirals. And so for conservatives, they they always want an ever more ordered and, and purified society. And for the left, they always want to combat ignorance. And so George just just played into the, the left wing need of saying, hey, look, look how far we have to go to educate Americans away from their, their woeful ignorance about race and uh, the police. They're, they're just so racist and they're just our society is just oppressing black people and holding holding them down, robbing them of opportunities. We, we need to do better without without that kind of jihad. There's no energy in liberalism, just like for for a, a Christian, right? Unless he's out there spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, where would he get the energy and enthusiasm? Do you think Christians can be filled with passion if they say, okay, uh, my belief in Jesus is a good path to the transcendent for me, but I don't feel any obligation to share it with anyone else? That would be a Christianity with its balls cut off. And so to a, an Orthodox Jew, who's leading an observant life, if he never felt any compulsion to share the, the wonders of Jewish observance with, with another Jew, then he's practicing a, a type of Judaism with the, with the balls cut off. So we all have this transcendental need for, for meaning because at the back of our minds is always this great fear that we're insignificant. And so I, I stream, you know, five, 10, 20 hours a week to kind of help ward off my own feelings of insignificance because I'm not married. I don't have kids. So I do my things to ward off a feeling of insignificance. Uh, People on the left do their things to ward off a feeling of insignificance. We're all standing here trying to ward off the feeling that our life doesn't matter. And so people get into various crusades or various causes or they, they push themselves to absurd lengths to try to prove to themselves that their lives matter. It's interesting, though, because with the uh, the summer of George, the level uh, to which people devoted themselves to his memory and to whatever cause they perceive as being based on his life, which was hardly a life worth emulating or championing, but whatever, uh, th- th- to me, I, I did see a level of, it looks obviously like something that comes out of Christianity uh, being infused into these protests in favor of justice for Floyd, including uh, organized uh, chants, that sort of thing, people reciting verses as to what they believe, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, I think that perhaps uh, the summer of George was a a watershed moment and that it marked uh, the beginning of a new public religion. Yeah, I I just don't see it as any different than any 
other basic attempt for for significance. I mean, that's what it is at, at core. So if I were to lay out to someone who wasn't already a believer the fundamental tenets of Judaism or Islam or the, the, the Mormon faith or Roman Catholicism or Seventh-day Adventism, anyone who wasn't already a believer would find it absolutely ridiculous. If I said, oh, you know, the angel Moroni came down here and buried these plates of gold, or that there were these two million people who were led through the desert and led through the, the Red Sea, and God provided food and water for them for 40 years when they lived in, in the desert, or God sent his you know, only begotten son to come to earth to die on a cross to save you from your sins. Anyone who doesn't already buy into that narrative would find it ridiculous. And so, too, anyone who doesn't buy into the, the liberal narrative about how our great fight is against ignorance and, and bigotry is going to find these manifestations rid ridiculous. But every cause looks ridiculous to someone who is not a true believer. I, I don't think most people realize how much we depend on non-rational sources for our meaning. I mean, when when I'm talking, doing my live stream and speaking to, to 15 live viewers, I have a vastly exaggerated sense of my own significance. <laughs> I mean, I don't think, oh, in the end, you know, 400 people are going to watch this stream and, and another 100 are going to listen to an MP3 and maybe five of them are going to find something, you know, really significant in what I have to say. I would feel crushed by my own insignificance and I'd probably give up. Instead, I have this vastly exaggerated sense of the importance of what I'm doing, and almost everyone does. I mean, the like we deal with people with Napoleon complexes, you know, in, in the workplace. Often they have, you know, one particular task, and everyone has to go through them to get something done. And these people are, are strutting around like men, of course, you know, imbue their work with all sorts of absurd levels of meaning that it just objectively doesn't have. So I, I don't see the wokeness as as any more absurd inherently than any other yearning for meaning where i do agree with you is that it's definitely trashing our country so there are a lot of pursuits of meaning and significance that are not trashing our country but the the woke summer of george and its after effects leading to the deaths of, of thousands of innocent americans through all sorts of horrible means whether automobile accidents pedestrian accidents or or murder i mean that is just horrific. So someone who believes something about the angel and the Mormon faith, then they're, they're not killing people. But people who push the narrative that the cops are just inherently racist and America's inherently racist, holding down the, the basic inherent goodness of black people, they are pushing a narrative that's responsible for the deaths of thousands of innocent people a year. Mm -hmm. Well, talking about uh, narratives being pushed in politics, there is this thing in the media about Christian nationalism, Christian nationalism taking over uh, the GOP, American politics. Uh, I think it's greatly overstated. To, I, I think one actually has to define Christian nationalism very carefully before saying much of anything about it. To me, it is the desire for a theocracy, in which case there's a state church, and it's a variant of Christianity, and it in, uh, informs every aspect of this uh, nation-state's public policy. Uh, very few people in the GOP want that, although the media makes it seem like Christian nationalism is on the march everywhere. I mean, you see your people like a Gab, Andrew Torba, saying X, Y, and Z. They call themselves Christian nationalists. I believe that Marjorie Green did the same, and Lauren Boebert questioned the separation between church and state. But other than people like this, you barely ever hear about it, except, you know, on CNN and such, where they say it's coming to kill everyone. Uh, what do you think about this matter, Luke? 
Right. Uh, so many things to say. I, I was only once in my life trapped it in a riptide and I was swimming in, in Brisbane, Australia, and I kept swimming to get back to the beach and I just kept getting pulled further away. Uh -huh. So we're in a riptide right now that the left has steadily gained control of all of our major institutions. So to try to preserve your, your way of life, you have to swim a lot harder than you would in, in 1950s America. So that's probably the first way that I understand Christian nationalism. It's an attempt by many ordinary Americans who 50 years ago would not have identified as Christian nationalists. But in these particular circumstances, that is the way they see is is the best to try to preserve you know something of their way of life like every living organism devotes itself to trying to reshape the environment around it so that it's most conducive for its own flourishing that means sharks and beetles and ants and people and christians and jews we're all trying to shape our environment so it's most conducive to our welfare and so uh, christians who see united states of america that now makes gay marriage the law of the land where many of our elite institutions think uh, the, the transsexual agenda is a wonderful thing and that people who feel like they're they're a member of the opposite sex that they can go get surgery like when, when you see that degree of degradation when when most of the coverage about uh, monkeypox is we, we shouldn't stigmatize gays for participating in mass orgies with strangers. We, we, the, the right to participate in mass orgies with strangers is you know written in the Constitution, and we should be very careful about stigmatizing this kind of antisocial behavior. When, when, when you look at that, then you start trying to construct a, a lifeboat out of that. And so nationalism has many different components, and what people say they are frequently bears absolutely no resemblance to what they're really all about. So plenty of people who say they're a civic nationalist, they actually believe in a strong component of racial nationalism. They just simply recognize the cues and the incentives to not express that, so they just t talk in terms of uh, civic nationalism. And so to plenty of people... Um, with, with r racial national uh, identity, they understand that it's completely socially unacceptable to say that out loud, but they can rally to the banner of Christ is King. What, what makes this so complicated is that nationalism is primarily something that is non-rational. It's an emotional uh, feeling of, of connection with other members of your group, the, the largest group possible that you can strongly identify with. And it's also a frame of mind. And so... People will, will use all sorts of terms, but th those terms don't denote what's exactly going on. The conflict in Northern Ireland between Catholics and Protestants is not primarily a religious conflict. It's given, it's given that terminology, but what you have are two different peoples with two different ways of, of living, two mm -hmm. different folk ways, and so calling it Catholic versus Protestant simply makes it uh, easier. And so many mm -hmm. of the people, I think, who identify as Christian nationalists, that's just a way that they can identify with a particular group that provides a possible way out of the you know, the hellscape that they see around them. And I, I don't think one should get too hung up uh, on the details, sure, there's a time and a place for getting hung up on the details, what exactly is Christian nationalism. But in, in the big picture, uh, nationalism is an identification with a people. It usually has a racial, a civic, an ideological, and frequently a religious component. But whatever component people choose to make for foremost isn't necessarily accurate. So I think people want safety out of what they see as a declining America.
Oh, obviously America is in decline, but I was going to say that the interesting thing is if one wants to use the whole Christian label as a means of identifying oneself uh, for the purpose of avoiding the uh, collapse of a traditional America, uh, most Christians are trending quite to the left. As a matter of fact, every, as I mentioned, major Christian denomination has been captured by wokists. And it's not like this was an armed coup. This happened within the, you know, within the, the rule book in each and every single denomination. So uh, it, it, it's done, obviously, to keep the uh, religion as congruent as possible with the emerging ideas of those who patronize it, the congregants. So uh, I think that people want to use Christianity as some means of getting around, you know, what America is becoming. They're not really seeing the forest through the trees. Perhaps they're not even seeing the trees at all. Uh, they, they probably have an idea of Christianity, which is very outdated. Well, we're all highly deluded. Like, I, I'm here sharing my delusions. You're sharing your delusions. The audience is like, reality is so complicated. You know, we, we struggle to get, you know, some sense of, of what's going on. So, yeah, we're, we're all filled with delusions. But I, I don't think that Christianity is as left-wing as, as you say. There are elements of it that are left-wing. But if you told me that someone read his Bible every day, I would say that the odds are above 60% that he's going to vote Republican. Uh, evangelical Christians were Donald Trump's strongest supporters. About approximately 70% of them uh, voted Republican. Donald Trump made an explicit deal with evangelical Christians. He, he told them in, in a church in Iowa back in early 2016, I believe, if I enter the White House, Christianity will have power. And so uh, evangelical Christians in particular did a deal with Donald Trump. They, they didn't focus on his infidelity and his divorces and all that was gross and atheist about him. They focused on this is a man who will give you know Christianity power, who appointed three Supreme Court justices to overturn Roe v. Wade, which is what m many Christians mm -hmm. like. This was this was a really big deal for them. So, yeah, it's it's, it's complicated. But there's nothing inherently left or right about Christianity. Christianity for millennia, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, acted as a vehicle for you know, racial nationalism and, and civic nationalism. So Christianity wasn't always this you know, wimpy liberal thing that we, we see now. I, I was just reading a book on uh, the history, history of England and is by Peter Ackroyd, a foundation, the history of England from its earliest beginnings to the Tudors. And so from year 400 until maybe 1700, Christianity was a major force in English nationalism. Like the kings were aware of the advantages of the Christian faith. It was more effective than the alternatives. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church preferred the rule of strong kings and unified governments. It made the work of religious control much easier. The priests were the literate members of the kingdom. They were the ones drawing up legal documents and title deeds and proclaiming what the law was. And the, the kings were happy to adopt quasi-liturgical roles as the embodiment of the people in public ritual. Now, did the kings have to believe in, in Christian faith to adopt this quasi-liturgical role? No. So it wasn't primarily an expression of their religiosity. It was just a way of enhancing authority as a way of enforcing respect and ensuring obedience. So kings and saints appear at the same time in English history. And they're, they're part of the, of the same team that, that is 
knitting together the various regions of the country into one nation. A single English church required a single English nation at this Correct. stage. And so Christianity has frequently been a force for nationalism, for racial nationalism. It's not like it's some inherent universalist left-wing uh, degraded thing. It's uh, a Christianity. The thing of it is people can make out of it whatever they want because inherently it has very little substance. Uh, it is something that obviously is an offshoot of Judaism synthesized with various uh, other religious traditions that were popular in the Mediterranean during the Bronze Age. Uh, and over the, uh, not just over the years, over the uh, generations, uh, Christianity continues to change. So if one reads the New Testament, as I have, it's very contradictory. It's hard to take away any comprehensive message from it. Uh, and this makes it very good for various folks to use, because as you said, Christianity is neither right nor left, and I presume you meant in a comprehensive sense. Yes. And with that, I absolutely agree. Uh, but uh, this is what makes it so uh, uh, utilizable and frustrating to me, because I see it basically as nothing, uh, but other than like some syrupy words and then some stuff taken from this tradition, that tradition, and cobbled together in a, in a way where you literally see the contradictions from book to book. Uh, but then uh, others know that most people are not this intellectual about religion, period. Uh, and so they're not going to care about these uh, these inconsistencies. And because of that, Christianity, with its very, very deep reliance on personal emotion, it's easy to uh, channel it into the uh, interests of whoever is in power. And that's why people on the left and the right are able to use it so reliably. I think this makes it a very bad idea, though, over the long run for any country to base itself on because at the end of the day there is no there there and that makes it very easy for somebody to usurp what you're doing and say no i have the true christian belief uh, and they can point to something in the new testament now you i know you wouldn't but the theoretical you might say no no i have the true christian belief it's right here but then somebody points to the contradiction of that and then you point to the contradiction of what they said and it goes on and on and on and this is what makes christianity to me so infuriating uh it's unique in that it's this substance free uh, but uh, it's it's really, I think it's very bad for statecraft over the long run. There were iterations of it, as you said, that were very nationalistic, and they did work. But of course, they didn't last. Uh, basically, the more uh, developed the society becomes, the more technologically advanced it grows, uh, the more educated its people are, the less they're willing to accept, you know, supernatural uh uh, reasons for X, Y, and Z taking place. I think that the truest conservatism is based upon history, heritage, and culture. And now religion does factor into that, no question, but it's in service of these things rather than being the centerpiece. And what a lot of American conservatives want to do, not, I mean, like most of them or anything like that, but a, a very noisy minority, what they want to do is make it so uh, there's this abstract focus on Christianity as the substance for American conservative life and American life generally. But uh, this Christianity, first and foremost, there are so many different denominations and the question becomes, which variant of Christianity are we talking about? Some people on the right, like Torba do this like, ecumenical thing, but that's never going to work. You can't have uh, a Christian nationalism based on Christian ecumenism. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's impossible. Uh, but uh, even beyond that, it's obviously a very desperate attempt to find some national identity. Uh, where there is none, as such we see in today's America. Uh, and it's very sad because this is sort of like people who are on a sinking ship trying to make a life raft out of wood planks. 
they could try, but it's not going to work. It's not the genuine article. The genuine article in terms of legitimate conservatism is history, heritage, and culture. Uh, the language you speak, uh, your bloodline, how people live within certain geopolitical bounds that your group has lived in since you know time immemorial, that's real conservatism. But unfortunately today uh, in America, we don't have any prospect for that happening. So we get this mech conservatism, if you will, which could be civic nationalism. It could be this Christian nationalism. It could be focused on abstract ideas, such as you'd find with the National Review crowd. Uh, it's really, uh, it's really pathetic all around. Uh, well, nothing lasts. So sometimes my, my sinuses are all plugged up at night and, and I use a nasal spray and it unplugs my sinuses. But does that last? It doesn't even last two days. It lasts about 12, 12 hours. But I'm so grateful for those 12 hours where my sinuses are unplugged. So the, just because something doesn't last is not a strong argument against it. Now, regarding theological disputes, my father was a theologian with, with two PhDs in theology. And so his whole life was built around arguing theology. And so I got a somewhat distorted understanding of Christianity because I thought, you know, all Christian homes are like this. But when I started to expand my life, I realized most Christians don't give a damn about theology. It's right. it's really the, the plaything of a few intellectuals. Uh, one way of approaching this is what kind of sex life do you want? If you want to have kids, what else are you going to do? You're going to need to become a Christian or an observant Jew or a Muslim. If you want to have kids and, and, and community, it will be so much easier to do it in America in, in a Christian religion. If you just want to bang and be promiscuous, then you're probably not going to be religious. Now, I think that that the the left wing and and right wing responses to life are genetically you know, agree. written 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 into us because in some situations a left wing approach to life is more adaptive. So in some situations, welcoming strangers and egalitarianism and trying new ways of organizing people is more adaptive. And so the, those are the left wing impulses that we've we've had for thousands of years. And then in other situations, a right wing approach of distrusting strangers, uh, an obsession with with purity and order and maintaining traditional ways of organizing people. That's more adaptive. So we need we need both of these. Uh, we need both of these adaptations uh, some circumstances one is going to be more more adaptive than the other but I, I don't think it really comes down to true conservatives based on on history and culture i think true conservatism is based on on the family and so if you want to have a family i just think it would be more adaptive for most people in the united states of america right now to be christian and it's not primarily about theology it's primarily about hanging out with your friends so i was taken aback by a sociologist who came from the religion I was raised in, who did a study and found that people tend to move out of their church if they have fewer than five friends there. So religion is primarily about hanging out with your friends and with your family and you know with, with, with your group. So I can go anywhere in the world and step into a synagogue and I've got a home, I've got a portable home. And so in an America that is so rationalized, that is so uh, transient, where people are constantly moving, a, a church is is a version of you know old-fashioned country living where people knew each other for for generations. Uh -huh. And so you know where else are you going to get that kind of comfort from? From a purely secular perspective, religion is primarily about providing people comfort. And yeah. so, if 
if people aren't getting their comfort from Christianity, you know, where are they going to be getting? It? They're not going to primarily be studying philosophy. They're not going to primarily be taking on uh, the teachings of the Stoics. They're going to be watching more TV. They're going to be having more promiscuous sex. They're going to be playing more video games. They're going to spend more money going to rap music concerts. I, I just see that the less Christianity in America, I don't see superior things by and large replacing it. Us. I don't. I, I don't think that superior things are going to replace what we have in America today, period. I don't think there's any kind of going to be any kind of renewal or turnaround. Uh, bringing Christianity back basically would mean that it would have to adapt to where people are today so it would be relevant to them. And that's where you get woke Christianity from, or a Christianity that's not woke but sort of like Joel Osteen, where it's very emotional and uh, highly subjective. Uh, and that really, I mean, I, it, it's... I'll put it to you this way. I mean, I've obviously been out of high school for quite a while now, but I did, I'm not Catholic, obviously, but I did go to a Roman Catholic high school and very few people, even back then, were believers at the end, at graduation. Uh, it was just something that they did or if they weren't believers at all, which would be like me. Uh, and it's it's really, uh, that was back then. This, this was, you know, quite a while ago now. Today, it has to be something, you know, like that, but on crack. So I don't think that bringing Christianity back into this social situation that I'm describing is going to save it. What saves people is living in a homogenous culturally cohesive, uh, one might say uh, pro-social community. Uh, and that is what you get in some place like Switzerland, where they do have robust conservatism, uh, or Uruguay. Uh, and now these are not places where conservatism is like Jerry Falwell, raging, evangelizing, this, that, the other thing, Rick Santorum bullshit. Uh, this could, the conservatism in these places is much more subdued, but it's much more genuine. In Uruguay, you have the conservatism of Latin Europe, which also produces an extremely secular society, but all the same, one with tolerance, but uh, surprisingly, robustly traditional values, even though uh, in Uruguay, you're very likely to run into the average person who will laugh at you if you bring up Jesus to them. And in Switzerland, it's quite secular today as well. And it's the same deal, except not Latin European, but it's either, you know, French, German, or Italian, which would be Latin European technically, but the part of Italy that Switzerland draws inspiration from is in the north, and that's very Germanic. That that kind of Italian life has a great deal of Germanic influence uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, so I, I think that the, the, tr the what America can have today in terms of legit conservatism is absolutely nothing because it does not have this sort of homogenous uh, community structure that's necessary for this kind of legitimate conservatism. Uh, you, if your country needs godly politics, then that means it's having problems because it means people are living in anguish. If your country does not need appeals to God and politics, that means it's doing quite well and people can self-manage and family units are cohesive and they function quite decently on the basis of a pro-social community, uh, uh, community system, not just a single community, uh, system, different communities organized within the same national framework. So I, I think that it's really interesting to see what works and what doesn't. But I think that America is always going to be very dysfunctional going forward because there is no national culture. There is no national language. There is no national identity. There is a uh, Conflict and conflict produces desperation, and when people are desperate, they very often go, "Oh God!" And that's where you get uh, Christian uh, politics on the right and the left. From uh, by the way, a lot of people on the right will say, 
you know, we need to bring back uh, uh, Christianity to promote social conservatism so the family can be uh, bolstered. And then the saying comes, uh, it always comes in one way or another, the family that prays together stays together. But if one looks at some one of the most religious communities in America, in terms of actual church attendance rates, uh, Black Americans, uh, they have an illegitimacy rate of almost 80%. And then other groups that are more religious than average, such as, say, Hispanics, even though they're not a single group, it's very heterogeneous, but you get the idea. They also have higher illegitimacy rates than average. Uh, so this idea that somehow uh, Christianity is going to solve all the problems or reinvigorate the family, the idea that a lot of American social conservatives uh, talk about, uh, it's not borne out by what actually happens. Yeah, but no one's arguing that Christianity solves all problems. What, what people would argue is that for many people, Christianity is superior to what else would replace it. And I'm surely even you would acknowledge that. For many people, Christianity is superior to its possible replacements. Oh, sure. No, no, no. To them, it is. But my question is, what kind of Christianity would you get in today's America, by and large? Uh, there is this idea that things could go back to uh, a more traditional day and age in which you had a Christianity that was very uh, patriarchal uh, and uh, so on and so forth. I, that would have to be what happens if there's going to be some sort of conservative social revolution on the basis of Christian thought. But that's not going to happen. Uh, it's just not going to happen. Uh, it, 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 the women aren't going to go back to that sort of uh, very submissive lifestyle. A lot of men simply don't have the interest in lording over women uh, in order to make something like that work, even if the women wanted it. Uh, and the way the economy functions is such that in order for people to have what's considered to be an acceptable standard of living, uh, they're going to have to do a lot of work. Uh, and uh, you can't really have this traditional state of affairs, such as one would see in the 1950s or even way before that, in a modern society uh, where most often both parents are going to have to work. Or you have a lot of single parent households, uh, particularly ones headed by women, in which case the woman obviously has to work. So it's really, I just think this traditional era cannot be gone back to. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Right, but th that doesn't mean that uh, you can't do do anything. Let Let's say that you want to you want to belong to a community that is dominantly homogeneous. Uh, pretty much the only way you can do that in in a big city in America is to either go to a church or a synagogue. That's true. I, I mean that it is completely you know racially socially acceptable to go to a church or a synagogue that is ninety eight percent white. And there is no other organization at which that is socially acceptable. That's so correct. let's say you want to go belong to a community where being demonstrably gay is socially unacceptable. Your only alternative is to go to a church or a synagogue. Let's say you want to belong to a community where just guys get together, right? Pretty much your, your only option is to go to a church or a synagogue. Let's say you, you want a community where, you know, guys meet, meet regularly just with guys and that your only choice is, is a, a church or a synagogue or, or I assume a mosque. Let's say you just want to feel something. Right. So uh, th there was an article in The Onion about some atheist walking past listening to gospel music and wishing he could believe in some of that nonsense. Well, I mean, Christianity produces amazing music, amazing art, and 
amazing feelings. Like people get a payoff when they go to church. It is meeting their needs for comfort. And so Mm -hmm. people want to feel, people want to feel alive. So when I was growing up as Seventh-day Adventist, our church services were stodgy. They didn't stay that way. Starting in the 1980s, there was this celebration movement where, where going to church was a lot like going to a rock concert. I mean, you really feel something and you go to a rock concert, the ticket's going to set you back $100. But you go to a church and you don't have to pay admission. You can experience all the things that people experience at a rock concert, but in a safer environment where people aren't doing drugs and they're not you know, high on alcohol and people aren't getting raped. So uh, people want things that religion provides. People, you know, may want to feel free of the diversity agenda. People may want to feel free from the homosexual agenda. People may want to feel free from the transsexual agenda. People may want to feel free from the assault of of wokeism. People may just want to hang out with people like themselves. I I don't know any more effective community formation than what's going on in organized religion in America. The thing of it is, a lot of what goes on in organized religion in America is not uh, subverting wokeism or promoting homogeneity uh, or anything like that. A lot of churches today promote uh, diversity to a very, shall I say, artificial degree, which is to say they want so much of it that it's not what people would ordinarily see on a day-to-day level based upon what might what one might call an organic lived experience. Uh, And then a lot of these uh, churches are also pushing social justice through Jesus, uh, which they're able to do for the reason I mentioned before, people can bend Christianity to be whatever they want. So it's, it's really, uh, it's really something that even a lot of churches say don't provide the refuge you mentioned, even though they certainly used to by and large, I, I don't debate that at all. And in large cities today, it's basically your last hope, as you said, uh, to find these more traditional things that probably would have to be in a church. I live in a community that's quite uh, homogenous and it definitely is not a, a religious community, but uh, it's not to say there aren't religious people here, but the community itself is not based upon religion at all. And if guys want to hang out with other guys, they can go to a uh, you know the bar and do so. Uh, there are clubs for people to join based upon shared interests, in some cases, something like, you know, heritage, something like that. Uh, So these things exist, but in certain areas, I don't live in a city, Uh, I live outside of one. So that's, you know, that probably is some at least something to do with it. But uh, there are still secular things that are available. Uh, But in in most cities, uh, the religion would be one's last chance at finding stuff like this, as Luke said, even though I think less and less religions are offering the the sort of environment uh, nowadays. Well, th- those religions that supported Donald Trump, such as evangelical Christi- Christians, certainly are are offering this. I mean, I can go to pretty much any Orthodox synagogue, and it's socially unacceptable to be trans, and it's socially unacceptable to be out as a homosexual. And uh, plenty of Orthodox synagogues I go to are essentially, you know, one hundred percent white. And so, mm-hmm. if if people want that kind of homogeneity and that kind of barriers against wokeism, there are plenty of organized religions that will provide that. So just because there are woke churches and left-wing churches, people are not stuck with only those options. People can choose conservative churches. You don't have to believe anything. Plenty of people go to church and synagogue and do not believe in God. Plenty of people go to church and synagogue, have no interest, zip, zero, zilch interest in theology or in anything religious. They go there because they have friends there. They like the community there. Like, where are you going to just walk into a ready-made, manufactured community? Mm -hmm. So many people I know 
would be when they have to fill in that form for emergency contact, they don't really have someone. Many, many people I know, if they have to get to the hospital, they don't have anyone to give them a ride to the hospital. So many people I know, if they are hospitalized, they don't have any community that comes to, to visit them. People are dying alone in their homes, completely unvisited for, for weeks at a time. That would not happen if you belong to a church or a synagogue. If I, God forbid, broke my leg right now and had to go to a hospital, you know, people in my religious community would come check check on me. They would help me out if if I you know fell on hard times. I could I could turn to people in my community. If you if you lose a job, you turn to people in your community and you get a job. Many rabbis spend the majority of their time like getting jobs for people, getting apartments for people. Uh, so yeah, you can go to a bar. Generally speaking, I think people are much better off going to church rather than going to a bar. Now, there is community in a bar, but generally speaking, if you, you know, get together with your fellow Christians or, or fellow Jews, it's going to be a more elevated experience, less likely to tip you into you know, some dangerous or dysfunctional behavior uh, by participating in organized religion than, than going to a bar. Now, on the other hand, I absolutely recognize that some people are far better off going to a bar than going to church or a synagogue. It, it's complicated. It's not like there's just one answer that everyone has to fit the, the cookie cutter of religion. Religion's not for everyone. And and so people are different. But I just don't think that the most people who want to build a family, for example, uh, would, would be better off, you know, doing that outside of the the warm embrace of, of a religious community. Uh, you mentioned that you find these uh, these things basically that give you friendship, identity, a support network in churches or synagogues, and one does find them in certain churches and synagogues. However, uh, at your average uh, American church, there really is not a strong sense of community. Uh, it's 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 very uh, atomized relative to what one would expect, say, at an Orthodox shul. Uh, so it's 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 uh, it's 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 interesting because I have some experience with this as people can deduce i've never been a church goer i'm not a christian uh, and uh i i i i still have experience with the christian church structure i went to presbyterian and roman catholic school as a boy and uh i did attend both of their services i like the presbyterian services better they were quicker uh but uh the the regardless uh the the presbyterian services i attended were uh, mainline and uh, the people there i was very young at the time but still the people there were you know what tended to be well to do uh, established in the community i never didn't get the impression though that they were all there to support each other it seemed like they were all there to participate in a uh, i wouldn't say a task but a sort of a communal activity. And then they went their separate ways. Now uh, I did spend much more time uh, at the Catholic schools and at the Catholic churches, I can say for certain that there was not a big sense of community. People drifted in, they drifted out. Nobody really followed your attendance there unless you're a member of something, what they call the parish, uh, some kind of council or charitable endeavor or whatnot. Uh, you could come or you could go and nobody would would blink. Uh, and uh, in the Catholic communities, I don't think there's much community at all unless you join some group. So it's not just like attending the church or becoming part of the parish. Is That that, that alone is not going to get you the sense of community that Luke talks about. So what yeah, I'm saying- effort. 
You have to put yeah. it, you have to put in a lot of effort if you want a lot out. You have to invest if you want to be able to reap re rewards. The investments that I get from belonging to the Orthodox community come with huge prices, and I'm willing to pay that price. Now, I'm willing to give up some sense of community for freedom. To, to say what I want to say on shows like this. But you don't just automatically reap the rewards of of church or synagogue. You have to, to work at it, but you have a choice how intense you want your sense of community to be. There are high-intensity religious communities. They all come with a price. Everything comes with a price, right? If you don't go to church, that's a price. If you go to a low-intensity church or synagogue, there's a price that comes with that. If you go to a high-intensity church or synagogue, there's a price that comes with that. I primarily have experience with high-intensity religion, where people live their lives around their religion. I experienced that in Orthodox Judaism, and I've experienced that in Seventh-day Adventism. But I, I have some you know, familiarity with low-intensity religion, and there are lots of advantages to low-intensity religion in that it's not as intrusive, and you have more freedom, and, and you're not going to be as, as trapped. Many people feel trapped by high-intensity. So you have to dial people up or, or, or dial institutions up or, or down. Many people would absolutely hate my guts if they had to interact with me every day, but if they just run into me once a month, it is perfectly fine. So some people we, you know, we need less of in our lives, or some institutions, you know, we need less of. So people get to choose. If you want high-intensity community, there are options. They all require sacrifice, right? Nothing for nothing. But if you if you can't deal with the price of high intensity community, but you don't want to be completely isolated, then you can choose a lesser intensity community, whether it's religious or not. But everything comes with a price. We're just talking about trade offs here between you know freedom and community. Definitely so, and I think probably most religions in America today are rather low intensity, judging from what I have seen, uh, which would explain why so many people are falling away from one, uh, you know, uh, religion or another. But uh, this is an interesting question, Luke. You say uh, obviously being in the Orthodox community works very well for you; uh, it has for some time. Uh, but you said it does come with costs. You've to spoken about the benefits, and the benefits are obviously very lucrative. But what are the costs? That probably give people a good approximate of what it means to be in one of these more high-intensity religious communities. Oh, so, yeah, con converting to Judaism is, depending on the personality, but many people find it so incredibly painful and degrading that they mm -hmm. never want to face anyone involved in their conversion, you know, ever again. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's fairly common that, say, you know, attractive women get crushed on by rabbis who are overseeing their conversion, that uh, many traditional Jews see anyone who wants to convert to Judaism as an idiot and as an easy mark that they you know, want to screw over or take advantage of. Um, rabbis who do Orthodox conversions tell me that 99% of the people that they deal with are insane. Mm -hmm. So it requires an ability to assimilate into a community, and particularly if you don't come from a ritualistic uh, way of life, assimilating into a highly ritualistic way of life like Orthodox Judaism is incredibly challenging. It's incredibly difficult because I grew up a, a Protestant. It was not a ritual religion. So I had to, you know, memorize the prayers. I had to be able to, you know, pick up a, a Sidur, the, the Jewish prayer book, and 
read from any random page, I have to read it aloud in Hebrew to demonstrate my competence in Hebrew. So learning Hebrew is not, not easy. Uh, learning to fit in with a community where people have good reason to have considerable suspicions about converts because yeah, 99% of people who want to convert to Orthodox Judaism are crazy. Also, of the people who do convert, an astounding number you know drop away fairly quickly so they jews orthodox jews have every reason to be highly suspicious of, of converts then you need to live your life within the good graces of your community and so whatever that entails that's that's going to limit your, your freedom so i've i've so assimilated to this that I, i'm probably not even thinking out loud but i mean some kids like who grow up orthodox they they go to a yeshiva they may stay there at a yeshiva and every night the rabbis come by and they rip the sheets off their bed to make sure they're not listening to non-jewish music right <laughs> That's oh, obviously oh. A, a huge prize. They rip the, the sheets off their bad bed to make sure that they're still wearing their, their fringes, their, their seat seat. Uh, okay. Other you know rabbis who teach in yeshivas have been pretty free you know, at, at smacking kids around, beating kids. There was a New York Times expose on Hasidic schools, this major Hasidic school where 100% of the students, the graduates of this school, failed the New York State test in, in English and um, and, and math. And so there's a, an in-group identity with, with uh, Orthodox Judaism. So there's, there's a, a dual, dual moral code. There's a more relaxed moral code for, for how you treat outsiders and a much more demanding moral code for how you treat members of your group. It's highly competitive. Like everyone seems to know your business. And so whether you're going up or down in life, uh, people know, and you very quickly learn, you know, where you stand. And so the competitive nature of Jewish life, it's a very expensive way of life. And there are just so many ways to look like an idiot because there are just, you know, hundreds of, of rituals and, and customs. You're just, you know, constantly, you know, in danger of you know, being playing, playing the fool. My God. So yeah, it's, uh, it's very challenging. Certainly, yes. And just so people know about, you know, how different Orthodox Judaism is from perhaps a more uh, familiar form of Judaism. I'm a Jewish humanist. Luke is an Orthodox Jew. We actually are at polar opposite ends of the Jewish spectrum. So me listening to this, I obviously know about what he's saying, not through personal experience, but through what I've heard from others. And uh, it is totally, uh, it is a unique experience, the Orthodox community. It's sort of like, I suppose, to compare to something that Christians or people from a Christian or predominantly Christian background might find uh, relatable, having someone who is a uh, like uh, a how do I put this like uh, ultra devout orthodox Christian uh, that would be the analog of Luke and then the analog of me would be something like a, a Unitarian Universalist so it's really uh, it's oh, the Unitarian Universalists aren't even technically Christian today but some of them are the, the denomination actually allows Jews Christians anyone who's on the search for spiritual truth it's a very unregimented but unfortunately it's been captured by the woke folks so it actually has become very regimented I'm sorry to say but anyway uh, so that, that that just goes to show the sort of religious diversity uh, at hand here. But uh, it's 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 fascinating to hear all of this for a host of reasons. I I, I think that uh, I, I really do think that when it comes to 
the United States, the right, it does not have a great future because the American right has no coherent vision. And, and as the Hebrew Bible says, where there is no vision, the people perish. So I, I think that, that America, it's hard to have any kind of vision for it today uh, on the basis of you know, some sort of tradition amongst its people because there are so many parallel societies in today's America that, like I said, there's no common American identity nowadays. Uh, and the left succeeds, I would say, because it's constantly driving for change and the people who want this change are ideologically committed to it, uh, so much so that it basically uh, defines who they are as people. They, 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 their identity is based upon their politics. Uh, and uh, you, you can't really... So for them, there's nothing that's apolitical. Everything is political. That's definitely something that is, is a sharp... Uh, dividing line between the left and the right in the U.S. The right tends not to be as political as the left, uh, and the left has political fanatics who are devoted to their activism basically at any cost. Yeah, so I, I don't think vision's nearly important, as you say. I think right or, or left-wing political orientations are you know, evolutionary adaptations to changing circumstances. So people have instincts. They don't need a political philosophy. You know, I love political philosophy, but people don't need a political philosophy. People just have an instinct. For example, if they see you know, dog feces on the sidewalk, the, the more that bothers them, the more likely they are to be right-wing. The more that their room... Is is kept neat and tidy, the, the more likely they are to be right wing. The, the, the more you know, people eat out at, at different restaurants and are open to you know trying new foods, the, the more likely they are left wing. So we just have these adaptations to circumstances which are constantly changing. So I mean, none of us realized that COVID was coming. We may very well be on the edge of a nuclear exchange with Russia, which would make everything else we're talking about, you know, kind of irrelevant. And I do think there is American identity. It's not as clear as it was, say, 60 years ago, but there was a terrific uh, teaching company course called American identity. And from the time of the American Revolution, prior to the American Revolution, Americans have had a self-consciousness. They, they think of their nation as representing something unique in the history of the world. And one major difference that I see between the American identity and British and Australian identity is there's much more of a can-do attitude. Are you an American can or an American can't? So when I watch British and Australian drama, there's much more of a sense of fatalism. Fatalism is not a part of American identity. There's, there's this sense in America that, yeah, we can do it. We can conquer. There's this you know, tremendous faith in uh, political democracy, in, in education. There's an anti-fatalist outlook. There's this belief that material and moral progress is possible. There's you know, tremendous faith in the, the benefits of education. There's an eagerness to live up to national ideals. Uh, there's a, a belief that individual economic exertion will generate wealth and uh, material development. So the the inventiveness of Americans, the adapt adaptability, the, the pragmatism of Americans is what uh, Daniel Borstein would uh, write about. The, the energetic approach to solving problems, the, the faith in human equality, uh, belief in the boundless possibilities of economic growth, making education available to every citizen. Uh, Americans tend to have very high expectations for progress. And Americans tend to be really into self-help, you know, far more than almost any other country. Americans tend to be constantly striving to improve themselves and their societies. Americans work harder. 
America is full of workaholics. In Australia, everybody gets a minimum of four weeks holiday a year, minimum. So uh, Americans, yeah, they're, they're not fatalistic. If something's wrong, they, they feel like they can solve it. Uh, they're, they're pragmatic. They, they, they excelled in irregular warfare and ingenious military improvisation in the first uh, two centuries of the country. They've, they've tended to have an intense pride in their own country, much more demonstrative than many other nations. Uh, highly self-critical. Americans have tended to be highly self-critical, tremendous amount of religious innovation in America. Uh, America, for the last 80 years, has led the world in scientific research. America, since the 1880s, has been the richest country in, in the world. And Americans are always coming up with new devices and trying to put them to profitable use. So the, the stereotype of the shrewd Yankee businessman who knows how to drive a bargain, that's still with us. I think that the American identity you refer to certainly was true, although today uh, I don't think there is the spirit of innovation, the can-do attitude that still characterizes the country on the whole. Now, it characterizes certain parts of the country, particularly the Intermountain West, places like that, no question. Uh, But uh, the country on the whole today, I don't think it does. I, I think that today, certainly the identity that you refer to is part of American history. And it was, I, I can't say that what you said is wrong if it's applied to that history. But today, particularly over the last 30 years, especially since the uh, year 2000, since the 2000 election that accelerated since 9-11, the uh, things here have been much more fatalistic and pessimistic. And the old American can-do spirit still exists, but in pockets. Uh, I'm not going to say it's not there, but if it exists in pockets, then it really can't be a national identity. It's one identity among many. Today, looking at America, you know, a lot of people say, I hate this country or I love this country. I say I'm indifferent to this country on the whole because I don't want to overgeneralize and say this country is good or bad by my perception. Uh, Parts of it I like, parts of it I absolutely dislike. Uh, And uh, as a result of that, I look at America in the same way that Someone from the EU would look at Europe, you know, someone from Stockholm and someone from Palermo don't have a hell of a lot in common with each other, but they're still part of the same political superstructure, the EU. Uh, someone such as me from Central Florida and someone from Seattle uh, and someone from Calexico and someone from Fort Kent, where they speak French generally, uh, and someone from Chicago don't have a lot in common with each other, but we're still part of the same political superstructure. Uh, so when you have this situation of whether it's on the old continent or in the U.S., parallel societies uh it's it's uh you, you get people who are very indifferent and apathetic toward uh quote unquote the nation uh whether the nation is the american one or the european union uh so it's it's really interesting but i think that the american identity you speak of certainly i know 100% it is part of american history and it still exists today in certain places but i think that uh for a host of reasons uh, america nowadays lacks the sort of uh, spirit which it used to have. And replacing it is a bunch of things. It's not just like one thing. It's a lot of things going on all at once, which makes discussing the matter very difficult. But that's my take on it. Right. And so identity can be triggered. So there were there were millions of American Jews who didn't really care about the Jewish state of Israel until the 1967 right. war. Yeah. I knew and, that was coming. Yeah. And right. so after 9-11, uh my my block had had a block party where we all gathered together and, and broke bread for the for the first time so you can 
you can experience a 9-11 and suddenly have a, an American experience just uh, completely rekindled, or you can leave the country for, for a while and then you, suddenly you realize what you, you miss about America. So our, our identities are often going to take us by, by surprise. And so America certainly has its, its share of problems. But I, I think primarily... We, we did see the world as it is. We see the world as, as we are. And so when, when we, you know, when, when things are discouraging to us, say we, we read a lot of news and, and we see, you know, negative, negative directions for our orientation about how America should work, then one tends to become depressed about America. But life circumstances can change and suddenly, wow, this, this American identity that you thought you didn't really care about can just uh, you know, rear up and seize you. And that can happen. Uh, I think that perhaps the identity that's most important nowadays, since there's more of like a decline of patriotism and shared national purpose and all that, would be your regional identity. Say someone from Pennsylvania mo moving to Australia might find that he or she misses pierogies or some such thing, uh, or Snyder's uh, or Utz uh, potato chips, stuff like that. Uh, and uh, if he or she returned home, he or she would probably, uh, maybe, I can't, it's not probably, be maybe, uh, would if feeling homesick would say, wow, I really missed this. This is where I'm from. Uh, and then it would be a resurgence of the identity. Now, if that person went to a part of America that he or she had never visited, going there from Australia, that person would probably feel very socially alienated because uh, I, I lived in I spent my, my middle school years in Pennsylvania, in eastern Pennsylvania, and there's no doubt that that's very different from uh, Florida, uh, and even more different from someplace like, say, uh, Portland, Oregon. So I think that this thing with America today is that it's so many different things all at once, and that creates confusion. It also creates conflict. Uh, and what I really find interesting is how ascendant the left has been over the last 10 years. I mean, it really has just like uh, had this explosion of public support, uh, it, particularly among the young, to an extent that was not previously seen. Any thoughts on that, Luke? Yeah, that, that's that's kind of concerning and, and bewildering as someone who does not share the, the woke outlook on life. And it's also kind of bewildering how the Republican Party has kind of deliberately become the, the party of the uneducated. And the the Democratic Party has increasingly become the party of, of people who go to go to university, and so uh, the Republicans have become the, the populace, and the the Democratic Party has become the the coalition of the the upper class and lower classes, kind of against mm -hmm. the the middle class. So, exactly. uh, what I I do reject for, from many of my right wing friends is that they just think it's all over. Like they think it's just, there's no hope. The left is going to win on on the basis of the trends that you talk about, or racial demographic trends, or any other trends. They they're just absolutely hopeless, and that's that's what I reject because everything that we're talking about is contingent. If we got into a nuclear war with Russia overnight, and Russia, let's say, takes out five of our cities and kills, you know, 10 million Americans, I think you would experience a resurgent American identity. And so the, the world is constantly surprising us. And 
I, I don't think that you know we're just fated to to be doomed, right? There there are many negative trends. I think it depends on what considers being doomed. Uh, I, I think that if there were some sort of catastrophic event like you know a nuclear war, which I don't think is any serious chance of happening, uh, or if there were like another nine eleven, which I hope doesn't happen, but it would certainly be likelier than nuclear war. I think America would not pull together in the way that it did in two thousand one. I think it probably would exacerbate already existing conflicts within the U.S. Uh, and it would render people even more uh, angry if that's uh, imaginable. Although it certainly should be because things can absolutely. Get Get worse, uh, as I think Luke and I would both uh, heartily agree. But I think that uh, when it comes to uh, the right, the problem is demographic, but it's not as simple as race. It used to be people just say, well, you know, because of race, we're going to lose. And in some cases, you know, racial demographics are almost 100% correlated with electoral demographics. But that's not always the case. Uh, what has happened is something very interesting. I was just reading an article about this today in The Hill. And uh, men, even though the uh, ancestral demographics among men have changed rapidly and they continue to change, men today are not any more on the left than they uh, have been in recent history. Women, on the other hand, are much more on the left. They've had this, you know, uh, surge of leftism within their ranks. So the change here is not uh, that's pushing leftism on the basis of sex is not so much racial as it is. Uh, well, basically any number of reasons that women are uh, zooming leftward. So these are demographic issues, and these demographics will doom the right. Uh, no question about that in my mind. But it's not something like saying, oh, this race is going to have such and such a number, so the right's going to be uh, non-viable in elections. This, this demographic situation I'm talking about right now, uh, this specific case, is one of a uh, sex, about half of the human species in the U.S., marching rapidly toward the left with no end in sight uh, and uh, only seemingly likely increases on the horizon. I believe only that 50, I mean, there are many different reasons, but probably the most striking one is that only 50 some odd percent of young women today identify as being uh, attracted exclusively to men. <laughs> so they're, they're certainly adopting this, this uh, sexual identity thing which is leading them to the left. But it's not just that. It's also, you know, getting quote-unquote educated at university. Uh, it's them believing that somehow men are holding them back from being all they can be, even though uh, many top institutions in today's society are run by women. Uh, so it's, it's really uh, complicated. But in terms of demographics that I'm talking about here, that absolutely is dooming for the right. That's doomsday because there's no way that the GOP can function uh, in a society that head continues in this direction. Well, uh, everything you're talking about are adaptations reacting to incentives. And when the incentives change, the different adaptations will come to the fore. So the, the German Green Party was very much against nuclear power. It changed its mind recently. Wow, why did they change its mind? Because for the German Greens, it was more important to support Ukraine than to oppose nuclear power. So Germany is firing up coal-fired plants. Uh, Europe is firing up coal-fired plants. Europe is looking at restarting nuclear power. Europe is completely remaking its its energy policies on the basis of contingencies, on the basis of, of real world events. Women, like men, respond to incentives. So we've we've developed an America where to be cool 
among professional circles, dentists, accountants, doctors, lawyers, is to, to be on the left. Uh, entertainment industry is dominated by the left. Academia is, is dominated by the left. Uh, who, who's a more compelling speaker, you know, Barack Obama or Mitt Romney or, or John McCain? Like Barack <laughs> Obama was certainly cooler. So for, for many of the people you're talking about, it's simply they are incentivized to identify with the left. But now you're getting the rise, extreme transsexual movement, where you're having doctors saying this is a great moneymaker, because once you start doing these transsexual surgeries, people have to come back for repeat visits. Absolutely. And so there, there are plenty of people who are on the left who are appalled by, by this development. Uh, other people are appalled by critical race theory indoctrination of kids. And they're pulling their, their kids out of left-wing schools and sending them somewhere else so as circumstances change when life becomes more serious right when life becomes more serious people become more right-wing so when you have good times people become degenerate but if the the good times go then people will adapt to that changing reality by shifting to the right so if we have some you know major economic downturn if we get into some very nasty war, if life becomes much tougher, people will shift to, to the right. Uh, then you had the governor in, in Virginia. He ran a very smart campaign, and in he won Virginia, the Republican governor. People didn't think that Republicans could uh, win Virginia anymore. Jair Bolsonaro won the election in Brazil. He was written off in this latest election, and he did surprisingly well. Republicans won more House seats in 2020, even though the polls showed that they were going to get absolutely swamped. Uh, the Tories have had power in Britain for 12 years. Uh, the the Conservative Party in, in Australia was in power for approximately the same amount of time. So all sorts of of people who wrote books about you know the coming inevitable you know democratic majority uh, that it hasn't worked out that way because the circumstances change these adaptations will will respond and what was a useful adaptation to say all these woke things uh becomes maladaptive in a different circumstance and now we're going to get to streamlabs uh from uh sh redstein Luke has interviewed some very controversial guests. What does he think of Kevin McDonald and the culture of critique? Oh, I really enjoy Kevin McDonald. I, I really enjoy the challenge of, of Kevin McDonald. Now, if you were to, say, compare the Kaufner's critique with Kevin McDonald's work, I think Nathan Kaufner's critique is much stronger. But I'm really glad for the Kevin McDonald challenge. Like, I didn't really think about the, the points that, that he made. And so I'm really glad for that challenge and he presents things in a way that is easy for me to engage in it's not like you know oh you know let's kill all these people and no he, he presents things in an academic manner he, he fashions an argument he cites sources and now Kaufness will argue that sometimes he, he misread sources or distort sources but uh, I, I really enjoyed all my conversations with Kevin. I enjoyed reading Kevin's books and, and his articles. I enjoyed the challenge. It's like playing tennis for me. Some people like to, to play tennis. I like to play tennis over YouTube where someone swats a, an idea to me and then I, I swat it back. If someone wasn't smashing the ball back at me, then it would be boring. So I, I'm glad for the, the Kevin McDonald challenge. I, I identify with his 
you know, kind of lonely pursuit of what he, he regards as truth. You know, I, I admire his courage, even though I, I agree with many of the Nathan Kaufner's critiques of his work. And from Clemens Wenzel, what do you think of Candace Owens? Is she really more than an attention seeker? By the way, I'm glad you haven't been affected too hard by Hurricane Ian, Joseph. Thank you very much, Clemens. Where I live uh, did not get much of an impact, but unfortunately areas to the south of me did, particularly southwest Florida, where the impact was and is catastrophic. Uh, it's not like it just went away uh, after the hurricane left, obviously. But uh, it's really terrible happening. I'm glad I didn't have any issues here. But uh, during the hurricane, I, I, I was actually out of the country. The hurricane prevented my return to the country by three nights. But I was in the Caribbean, so I was uh, in a, having a very nice time all the same. Uh, it's it's uh, I, I really like the Caribbean Sea. My family has... Uh, my, my family, for those of you who don't know, but my father's side of the family is from the, the Caribbean. So the Caribbean Sea to me feels like home. It really does. Uh, and a big part of the reason I'm so attached to Florida is because it's so similar to my ancestral homeland. Uh, typically when I tell people that I'm of West Indian background, they often say, but you don't look black at all. And <laughs> there is a reason for that. Not everybody from the West Indies is black. Uh, and I guess I do enjoy shattering the stereotype. Anyhow, though, uh, talking about Candace Owens, uh, I, uh, I do think she is an attention seeker, but I do think she's very intelligent. She actually is of West Indian background as well. Uh, and uh, she is someone who I think wants to generate controversy, but at the same time, she does so in a fashion that is rather intellectual. Uh, I think she is uh, very much a product of this day and age where you have these media sensationalists who say X, Y, and Z, uh, and uh, they, they don't think about much more than, than getting uh, publicity for themselves. I, I, but I do think she has more intelligence than a lot of people who do this. So, yeah, I'd say she's more than an attention seeker. Do I think she believes in what she says? <sighs> Generally, I, I think I, I'll put it that way. Luke, anything to say about what Clemens brought up? Yeah, I think that Candace Owens reacts to incentives just like everyone else. She can be the queen of the right by, by taking these right-wing positions. I, I think she's more than an attention seeker. She does some incredibly brave work. I think she's she's in the top 1% of, of black pundits, of which I'm aware. Uh, I mean, you, you, it's not fair to judge her against a university professor. She's in the, the punditry game, and pundits make their living and rise or fall in influence by dishing out to people what they, they want to hear. So given the constraints of the genre in which she works in, I think she often does extraordinarily good work. Now, I think she's absolutely nuts on some things, but there's no essential... Candace Owens, just like there's no essential Joseph Cotto, there's no essential Luke Ford. In in some things, I am, you know, the slimiest, most dishonest, disagreeable, disgusting person you'll ever meet. In other things, I'm honest and, and forthright and courageous. In other things, I'm absolutely cowardly. Nobody is honest in all things. Nobody is strong in all things. Nobody is courageous in all things. It's all situational. So 
it's not like there's an essential self. It's not like, oh, if you know someone's black, then then you know who they are. Or if you know someone's Jewish, then you know who they are. Or if you know that someone is like a truth seeker, then you, you know who, who who they are. The the left is, is right in, in criticizing like racial determinism, that if someone is, is of this race, therefore they must be X, Y, Z. But the, the same thing is true for all sorts of other traits. So just because someone... Just because someone sucked a cock, you know, one day in prison doesn't mean he's a cocksucker. Just because someone is is like an attention getter in, in you know, one aspect of their life, in interpersonal relations, they may not be that way. Someone may be the life of the party in one instance and be incredibly quiet and introspective in another instance. Uh, people who are faithful to their spouses, you know, frequently cheat in business. Uh, preachers who give a great sermon are, you know, often stealing money. Uh, rabbis who are, you know, great community leaders, you know, on the side might be diddling some kid. Like people are incredibly complicated. There's not like some true essence of anyone because who we are is reflected in the people that we interact with and the situations that we find ourselves. Of course, there is a genetic basis to who we are in genetics and uh, in form. I think it's safe to say uh, our personality generally, but there are environmental factors which also make us who we are. So I'd say who we are as individuals is a mixture of nature and nurture. And what some people would say is change within a person is not so much as that person fundamentally changing uh, who he or she is, which I think would be impossible, uh, but it's rather that new situations develop and people react to them in different ways. It's a process of adaptation. Well, I mean, let's let's say um, attention seeker. So all, all the people you you might use the phrase attention seeker on, there'd be all sorts of situations where they would not seek attention. Or if you, let's say you say, oh, this person is outgoing, there are going to be they, they they study this and they find that people who are quote unquote outgoing, that's only true like sixty percent of the time. Forty uh, percent of the time they're introverts. So someone you think is honest. The, these traits are only domain specific. So let's say you have an accountant who's honest in how he does his job. That tells you nothing about how he conducts himself outside of his job. Someone who you think is incredibly courageous and forthright on, on a YouTube live stream, you know, maybe cucking to his wife, maybe, you know, cheating on his taxes, maybe, you know, diddling his, his neighbor, uh, maybe, you know, a big scaredy cat when it, when it comes to lightning. So there, there are no traits that, that are universal. And from Clemens again, do you have any predictions on the upcoming elections in Israel? Netanyahu and his right-wing allies seem to be able to possibly regain a majority. That's the impression I get. Uh, I, I, I would say that it seems more likely than not at this point uh, that that's uh, obviously Israeli politics are very complicated and they have a unique system that's uh, almost impossible to explain. But uh, it's, it's it's a unique electoral system, I mean. But I do think that uh, it's very possible, pr probably more likely than not, that uh, Netanyahu and Likud will gain, uh, uh, regain their majority. Luke, anything to say about what Clemens brought up? 
Yeah, the, the Israeli left is very different from the American left. The Israeli left, by and large, is nationalist, is, is uh, pro-Zionist, is very much rooted in reality. Israel is a very serious country. It has to be to survive. The, the left in Israel, generally speaking, is a very serious group of people. And though I don't believe that the left will, will come to power in Israel, if they did, the nation wouldn't fall apart. It wouldn't have some kind of George, summer of George crime spree. So... Uh, Israeli is very serious people, you know, whether or not it's Bibi Netanyahu is the prime minister, the right wing is has been ruling in Israel for uh, over 20 years. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that the right won't, won't continue to rule. And whether it's Bibi Netanyahu or, or someone else, you can be pretty assured of a nationalist right wing government in Israel for as far as I can see. From Clemens, once again, what do both of you think of the newest claims published in the New York Times that Ukraine was behind the murder of Daria Dugina? That's obviously Alexander Dugin's daughter. I'm not surprised at all. I, I always thought from the beginning that the Ukraine was responsible for her death, uh, that the, the Ukrainian government, despite what a lot of people in the West think, is not some bastion of a <laughs> quote-unquote Western liberal democracy. Uh, it is a, something that's run by a very ruthless and corrupt oligarchy, although now I guess it's run by the EU and the US and the UK. But uh, the fact of the matter is that the Ukrainian government, the way it operates, I would not at all at all be shocked uh, if it uh, killed uh, outside of the law uh, its own opponents in something like a car bombing. Uh, so I'm not surprised to hear about this revelation in the New York Times. Uh, it's, it's, I, I thought from the beginning that Kiev was responsible for the death of Daria Dugina. Uh, I think it's, it's probably safe to say that they were intending to kill her father and she just was caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, Luke, anything say about what Clemens brought up? Uh, yeah, absolutely shocked because I just thought you, Ukrainians were just like the sweetest, nicest, kindest people ever. <laughs> to, to, to imagine that they would conduct an assassination on Russian soil. You could knock me over with a yarmulke. I, I think what's interesting, <laughs> Steve Saylor made this point <clears throat> that the, the deep state released this information because what they're really talking about is the Nord Stream pipeline. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it makes sense that uh, Ukraine assassinated Daria Dugina, but what's primarily on, on their mind is the Ukrainian uh, interference with the Nord Stream pipeline. And even though the West is by and large united behind Ukraine, they don't want them leading into World War III. So there, there's plenty of concern among powerful people in the United States and Europe that uh, Ukraine stays in line. Mm -hmm. And from Clemens, once more, have you heard of the newest LARP called MAGA Communism? Yes, I have. It's sort of like a nationalistic form of Bolshevism, so far as I could tell. Uh, it, there is a voice for it online. Uh, I have more respect for these people than I have for the woke left, infinitely more respect. Uh, it it, it kind of reminds me of East Germany a lot, because in East Germany, you had a fundamentally conservative on social issues, communist government. Uh, and the MAGA communists remind me that the thing of it is that you can't really do East German uh, socially conservative communism in the U.S. of today because East German socially conservative communism was meant to conserve Prussian identity. Uh, and today, as I said, America has no common culture, no common identity, no common language from my point of view. Uh, so it's, it's really uh, – but I have heard of this MAGA communism. And uh, it is a LARP for some people, but I think some people actually do take it seriously, but I don't think it has a great future of any kind. Luke, anything to say about what Clemens brought up? 
Yeah, nationalism is not inherently right wing or left wing. You could have, you know, a nationalist communist state or a nationalist free market state or everything in between. Just like there's no inherent left or right wing uh, tendency to Christianity or or to Judaism or, or to nationalism. And from, let's see here, Wojak Woes. How's it going, Wojak? Gentlemen, why do Jews and Muslims have a spine, but Christians have this spineless niceness to them? What makes Christianity so weak compared to the other two? I think praying for Jesus, rapture, and Trump is just to cope and cowardly your thoughts. I 100% agree that praying for Jesus, rapture, and Trump is a cope and cowardly. It's not surprising, though, because, as I was saying before, uh, when one gets to the point of talking about God and politics in one's country, it's an act of despair. And in America, Christianity tends to be the doctrine of choice as a means of alleviating one's despair. But uh, as I also said, I don't think that's a good idea given what's in Christianity, what it espouses. Uh, I I think that Christianity, now uh, obviously a lot of Jews in the U.S. are are on the left, but there are a lot also who are not, Uh, and Judaism inherently is a much stronger religion than Christianity is, Uh, as is Islam, although I think Islam is strong in some very, very, very counterproductive ways. I'm not a fan of Islamic strength. I much prefer the Judaic strength, which is basically uh, blood and soil, history, heritage, and culture, nationalism. Uh, Christian, Christian strength is it's different. Uh, it's, it's more universalistic. It's more imperialistic, dare I say. And it's much more self-contradictory than anything in Judaism or Islam. Uh, but I, I think that... I, I think that the the question fundamentally of why Judaism and Islam have the spine that Christianity lacks is not one easily answered. If I had to guess, I would say it's because that Christianity was formed as a means of controlling people in ancient Israel without them actually having any uh, societal change uh, as a result of their actions. It was meant to get people focused on the next life as opposed to this life. And I think that's what really causes the spinelessness more than anything else. Luke, anything to say about Wojak's very good question? Yeah, I don't think spine or spinelessness is inherent to Christianity or to Judaism or Islam. They all manifest very differently in different circumstances. So in certain situations, you know, a lot of Christianity will be spineless, but in other situations will be quite muscular that uh, 70% plus of evangelical Christians supported Donald Trump, who's the most, you know, anti-Christian person you can imagine in in his lifestyle, uh, shows that, that a large number of Christians are incredibly pragmatic and, and they want power. And if that means supporting someone like Donald Trump, they, they throw in and, and do it. So there are very, you know, strong parts of Christianity still still kicking around. And for example, the Supreme Court invalidated Roe v. Wade. So, I mean, that is muscular Christianity, whether you like it or not. You will now have all these states where they are influenced by, by Christianity ruling abortion illegal. I don't think there's anything like that in, in the Western world. That's muscular Christianity saying, you may not do this. So, if you think that uh, Christians lack spine, well, keep watching what the U.S. Supreme Court does. There's no inherent reason that the U.S. Supreme Court will not invalidate gay marriage. There's no inherent reason that the U.S. Supreme Court won't invalidate uh, sodomy uh, restrictions, uh, that, you know, the restrictions against having sodomy laws. It's, in, it's 
possible that the, what if the u.s supreme court you know uh, ruled uh, uh birth control illegal watch what this u.s supreme court does it, it's already done all sorts of things that five years ago all the the smart people said you know absolutely not possible this will this will never happen so you may see a lot more muscular christianity coming down from the u.s supreme court I don't know when it comes to abortion. I don't think. I mean, obviously, people do in the U.S. tend to base their opposition on their Christian belief. But I have read the New Testament, uh, something I often say, and there is nothing in there which I could tell that prohibits abortion at all. Uh, it, I think that's more of something that was a, a secular disgust for abortion that got looped into the American right when people discovered that they could use it to gin up a large base of people who thought that abortion was simply going too far. It actually comes out of, in the U.S. politics, in terms of political activism, the anti-abortion movement, so-called pro-life, comes out of the left-leaning Catholic social justice movement of the late 60s, early 70s. And then the religious right discovered this abortion issue they could use as a, uh, a wedge to drive people to the polls. Uh, and they started really uh, getting people hepped up about it by the late 70s, and then obviously it spiraled since then. Uh, I, I don't think that the Supreme Court will overturn uh, Griswold or Lawrence or anything like that. That's my inclination. But uh, obviously, I'm not giving any advice here or anything. It's just I, I don't see it going that way. I could be wrong, but uh, one never does know. Uh, from uh, Clement hang, on, Wenzel, hang on, hang on. I just want to jump in on, on that. Uh, Christianity is not primarily a religious text. It is a culture. From, from a secular perspective, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, these are cultures, and cultures have texts, but that doesn't mean that the texts are determinative. It's not like there's you know one text that then defines Christianity. Christianity expresses itself differently depending on the people and the circumstance. So in, in America, the last 50 years for, I think, primarily completely secular reasons, Christians have made abortion the number one issue for one thing, because it's socially unacceptable to say we hate black people. So mm-hmm. they, they couldn't rally around on the notion we need to preserve tax breaks for racially discriminating private schools. That's not something that's going to bring people together. But you can bring people together. You know, we want to save life. We want to protect the unborn. We've got this, you know, mass murder scourge. Abortion is not primarily about abortion. Abortion is a way of you know, standing up against a degenerate outside world. It's a way of bringing people on the right together. It's a way of expressing your disgust at uh, certain groups and their promiscuity. It's, it's a way of organization. And so organization does not depend upon telling the truth. For example, this is a topic I, I wanted sure. to, to discuss, but uh, uh, after January 6th, it looked as though Republicans overwhelmingly were going to reject Donald Trump, Republican politicians. Instead, virtually all Republicans have fallen in behind Trump's perspective that the 2020 election was stolen. Now, is it on the basis of evidence and truth? No, they got a sophisticated reinterpretation of Trump's claims, which made the point that uh, voting regulations were changed and not by legislatures prior to the 2020 election. So they found a sophisticated, tenable way of falling in behind Trump's line, which unites people on the right. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the the empirical truth of of what they're saying, just like the, the power of Christianity or Judaism or some yoga cult does not depend upon the empirical truth of, of what they state that their tenets are. So 
saying that you're opposed to abortion is a much nicer way of saying I hate black people. Uh, I, I don't think it's quite that. The thing of it is this. Uh, I have been called a racist, not so much by people on the woke left, but by hardcore, quote unquote, pro-lifers. These people, by and large, are fanatically anti-racist. And they make arguments they'd expect to hear from the woke left, uh, but they're just thrown into this anti-abortion perspective with some obviously changes from the typical uh, left-wing pro-choice point of view to a supposedly socially right-wing, supposedly pro-life point of view. And the, the people on, on the, on the quote-unquote right today who are anti-abortion are all about black rights and the white man oppressing the black man through abortion, black genocide through abortion, which is promoted by Margaret Sanger, who actually disliked abortion and advocated against it, go figure. But uh, today's, today's uh, anti-abortion folks definitely are not uh, motivated, generally speaking, by some animus toward blacks. Uh, they, they are, if anything, Afro-Amero uh, uh, <laughs> uh, phylic. <laughs> well, let, let me challenge you. Let, let me challenge you on that. Do you think that most people who want to make abortion illegal vote Republican? Of course not. Okay. I mean, of course they do. Of course. Okay, so they are dev dominantly on the right. Generally speaking, John Derbyshire made this elementary point. There are tens of millions of Americans who don't much care for black people, and these people overwhelmingly vote Republican. Yeah, but the people who are very committed to the anti-abortion cause, the activists who can't stop talking about it, they, number one, they support abortion's ouster because they say, and they, they really believe this, that abortion is anti-black and that they are fighting as part of a new quote-unquote civil rights movement. Uh, if you want to have a population that's more traditional, I'll put it that way in the U.S., abortion is a great way of getting it considering who gets the abortions, the demographics of who gets the abortions. And I talk about the demographics of who gets abortions quite a lot, and there are many different ways of putting it. But speaking specifically about ancestry, if you want things to go back to the way they used to be, abortion is a way of having that done because of who gets the abortions. There would be uh, a certain group that would be much more numerous today if not for abortion. And for people who are anti-abortion to claim that, for people who are anti-abortion to actually dislike blacks <laughs> and vote Republican and oppose abortion rights out of some way of not being able to voice their dislike for American blacks doesn't make any sense because what they're advocating for regarding abortion is something that would make the black population grow exponentially, which is to say banning abortion nationwide. Right, but uh, people's adaptations don't have to, to make rational sense. People have these inchoate reactions to, to the world around them, and, and that's what uh, drives their, their politics. I mean, I, I think you'd agree with me that tens of millions of Americans don't particularly care for black people and that most of these people who vote of that group do vote Republican. Certainly, they, they, they do. I don't disagree with that at all. I just think that the people who are very passionately uh, anti-abortion, they are they, they, these people would, I'm telling you the truth, Luke, because I, I have had the terrible misfortune to speak with them at length. And uh, they would rather their girl, their, their girl bring home their young girl, their, their adult daughter, bring home uh, a, a black guy who is, uh, conforms to very unfortunate stereotypes, but is pro-life rather than a white fellow who's very upstanding and going places, but is pro-choice. These people believe this shit. They, they, they do. Uh, and it's, it's quite, uh, it's, it's bizarre. It's actually anti-white in its own way.
But it's not bizarre because they're simply responding to incentives. You're talking about activists who are in media spotlight or public spotlight, so they have to fight. Regular right, people too who are activists. They don't have to be right, uh, but famous. they they're in a social circle where to be racist is completely unacceptable. If you're a professional, if you're college educated, it's completely unacceptable to be outwardly racist. So they're going to have to go over and above and beyond you know, perceptions of Republicans and pro-life people as being racist. So they, you know, will go to ridiculous lengths to try to show their, you know, non-racist credentials. Like we're all responding to incentives. Uh, they're responding to incentives. I'm responding to incentives. The reason that th these people are saying what seem to be absolutely ridiculous things are perfectly rational adaptations to the, to the set of incentives that they operate under. And in, in a different circumstance, they would react differently. And from Clemens Wenzel to Luke, do you think of Richard Spencer as an edgy liberal, a contrarian, or as something different? I think of him as a, a contrarian, as a something of a, of a shock jock, as someone who you know, li lives to, to make an edgy take. And I, I think he's he's more interesting than... Than ninety-eight percent of commentators of the alt-right. So yeah, I listen to Richard, you know, reasonably regularly, not as a source of truth or, or wisdom, but just like, oh wow, that's an interesting perspective, one that you know I never would have uh, thought of. So I, I find a lot of like entertainment value listening to to Richard. I, I don't see him as a source of wisdom and truth. Do you think he takes himself seriously? I mean, do you think he really believes what he says at this point? Yes, I think he takes himself very seriously. Is that supposed to be a joke or is that your honest opinion? No, absolutely. Absolutely. He, he takes himself tremendous. He's got a tremendous sense of gravitas. He's got, he, he comes from a theatrical background. He wanted to be a, a theater director. And so he has more musicality in his voice. He has more of a sense of gravitas in his presentation. You, you kind of get the sense that he's he's singing his his words, you know, on stage in a musical. There's that that level of th theatricality in his presentation. And yeah, I think he sees himself as a Nietzschean, you know, great man in history. I, I think he does, although I think that what he's saying now, it's so totally contradictory to what he used to say that uh, I, I, it seems to me he's trying to get back into polite society, from which he sprang. He comes from a very affluent, uh, well-respected background, but his life has been destroyed by his activism. Uh, and I think now he really, really wants to go back to the way things were, wants to put the toothpaste back in the tube, and he understands that in order to get back to where he used to be before he became well-known politically, uh, he has to uh, conform to what polite society has become, which is wokeness. Uh, and if you read, and I know you do, read what he says and listen to what he says, he basically comes off as an MSNBC pundit at this point. Uh, and uh, what he says, I think, is so... Uh, I, I can't see how he went from what he used to say to this and actually means it. I, I, I think that what he's doing, it's just one man's opinion, but I think that what he's doing is trying to... Uh, to I try to put this kindly, he is trying to become something that he thinks other people will accept in the circles that he wants to travel in. He's trying to shed his old skin and grow into this thing. And I don't think that him believing in what he says has a lot to do with any of that. So I think we, we all do that. I, I'm not going to say anything on this stream that's going to get me in trouble with my sure. Orthodox Jewish community. We're all reacting to 
to incentives and any person with any degree of, of health wants to become socially acceptable like porn stars who, who leave porn uh you know want to become socially acceptable and so i think that's perfectly true and, and legitimate that you want to emerge above ground and you don't want to get punched in the face every time you you walk down the street also i think he is disgusted by much of the, the dissident right this is a trajectory that that i saw from say 2014 on that a lot of people become red pilled and then they start thinking what else are people lying to us about and they start embracing flat earth they they start sure. embracing uh, mind Kampf. They, they go in all sorts of crazy destructive directions so much so that it, it just empirically seems like most people who've become red pilled that that has damaged their life more than it has benefited their life and so richard i think was right kind of in the middle of that and he saw this this same thing and and so i think he's he's reacting against that and yeah i still consistently find him him interesting he, he's not he's not a solid person like he, he's not a poor godfrey you know so, someone of great substance but he is tremendously entertaining if you like this type of musical theater uh, uh, that is a very very charitable way of looking at him uh from sh redstein uh has luke read the perils of diversity by byron roth I know Lucas had Byron on his show, and I have read his interview. How do Jews reconcile what Byron pointed out, the double standards on ethnocentrism and immigration to the West and Israel? Right. So so Jews are all over the place, just like non-Jews and Asians and, and Christians. So Jews who support uh building a wall in israel you know support building a wall in, in america so jews who want to kick out illegal immigrants out of israel by and large support kicking illegal immigrants out of the united states so jews who are anti-zionist right. are the jews who are most likely to be on the left so anti-zionist jews are you know at least 80 percent are on the left so also in, in America, more than 90% of Jews in America are Ashkenazi, and a majority of them come from Eastern Europe. So they come from backgrounds where for hundreds of years, they had a hateful relationship, by and large, with non-Jews who hated them back. On the other hand, there's a minority of American Jews who come from Western Europe, where Jews for centuries had, by and large, admiration for the non-Jews around them. So it's all about, you know, what type of Jew and in what circumstance. So Sephardic Jews, for example, you know, aren't... Uh, don't tend to be on the left. They, they don't have, you know, a knee-jerk anti-Christian attitude. Jews from Western Europe tend to have, you know, very different politics and reactions to Christianity and to non-Jews compared to Jews from Eastern Europe. So Jews are not a monolith, right? There are whole varieties of Jews, and they express themselves differently under different circumstances. And yes, I read Byron Roth. <laughs> uh, he's been on Kano Gottfried. I hope to speak with him. It was a conversation. I really, you know, I, I was going to say, I, I think that there is, uh, I, I, I was trying to figure out how to say these things without, you know, it, it coming off in a way that that's unsettling. There is on the American right uh, an expectation that Hispanics will save you know, the Republicans. There's no question that the Hispanics, although I don't even like calling them the Hispanics because they're a very heterogeneous group. Hispanic is just a label that Uncle Sam made up by people from uh, who 
that's colonized by the Spanish Empire. But I, as much as I hate using the term, I'll use it here for conversational purposes. It's a frame of reference that most people would get well enough. Uh, the, the Hispanic community is certainly trending more Republican than many people, myself included, thought well, I think it definitely is skilling. Uh, but a lot of people on the American right are absolutely obsessed with getting more of the American black vote. And I say American black because the right in the U.S. does get a surprisingly decent portion of the Caribbean black and obviously sub-Saharan African black uh, vote. Uh, and that can definitely be improved upon. But a lot of American conservatives bend over backwards trying to get more American blacks specifically. I guess the other kind of blacks just aren't good enough for them. But uh, it's, 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 it's really interesting because no matter what these American conservatives do, the American black community spurns them basically at every turn. Uh, it, it's very interesting to see how people on the American right try to more or less prostrate themselves before American blackness. Uh, but uh, the American black community uh, does not reciprocate, to say the absolute least. Anything to say about that, Luke? Yeah, I think there's there's a fundamental difference in our worldviews. I always try to understand what people are saying and doing from what would be the rational reasons why they, they act this way. And you seem to often point out, you know, how highly irrational, you know, various groups are. So when people on the right are appealing for the black vote, it's not about appealing for the black vote. It's about making it socially acceptable for non-blacks to vote for, for the right. So just like... That's rally, a good way of putting it. That's a good yeah. way of looking at it. Yeah. So just like uh, being anti-abortion is not primarily about abortion because there's virtually nothing in Christianity that would make, you know, anti-abortion a crusade. It's a way of organizing people with a certain worldview, you know, a, a bridge with an other worldview so that you can get certain things done in society. So all those people on the right who are appealing for the black vote, they're not doing it to get the black vote. They're just making voting Republican more so, trying to make voting Republican more socially acceptable by saying, you know, look how anti-racist we are. Mm-hmm. What's very interesting is that in the black community, when there is a black Republican running for office, that person tends to get less of the black vote than a non-black Republican does, because in the American black community, uh, someone is thought of as... not terms I particularly like, but an Uncle Tom or a servant of Mr. Charlie. Uh, if, if you are the the general perception of you, if you are uh, an American black uh, from people in your community, is that if you are a Republican, you are trying to quote unquote act white, and therefore you are being servile to Mr. Charlie, uh, and you are an Uncle Tom. There's even a documentary made about black conservatives called Uncle Tom, and it wasn't castigating. It was just talking about the sort of abuse they face from their own community. Uh, It's really, uh, really something to see. But uh, so what Luke is saying does make sense if one views what's happening, uh, these Republican appeals to blacks and running black Republicans. Uh, It's not really about winning the black vote. Rather, it's about a form of uh, social acceptance and acceptability. Right. It's just like Karl Rove being so, so pro-Hispanic. It's not because Karl Rove, you know, just loves Hispanics. He sees it as a way of diluting black influence if we just bring more Hispanics in, into the country. And he sees it as a way that, you know, Republicans can use this to their electoral advantage. He may be right or he may be wrong, but his like, you know, pro-Latino immigration perspective is not about being pro-Latino. It's about trying to neutralize the black vote so that Republicans can win elections. 
Why do you think that the black community is so resiliently loyal to the uh, Democratic Party? And I do want to stress, uh, it's not necessarily everyone who's black in America. We're talking about the American black community, not the far more uh, politically open-minded Caribbean or sub-Saharan African black communities in America. But the Afro-American community in particular is something that is, is, is of almost indescribable loyalty to the Democratic uh, ticket. Any ideas to why that might be? Yeah, I think they're acting rationally because the people on the left, by and large, are more interested in sending social services their way. It would be irrational for most black people to vote Republican in the current setup. Now, uh, 80 or was it 100 years ago, it was more rational for, for blacks to vote Republican because Republicans were more you know, pro-black than than Democrats. But right now, by and large, you know, Americans don't want socialized medicine because they they don't want to see, you know, a huge percentage of those funds going to black people. And uh, people on the right, they, they generally speaking, want to shrink the size of social services because they see them as going to people unlike them you know, going to to black people. So it just makes perfect rational sense to me why the overwhelming majority of blacks would be on the left because the left wants to shovel social services their way and the right, generally speaking, wants to minimize that. I think it's more than that because even uh, blacks who American uh, Afro Americans who have no need for social services who do very well for themselves uh, are resiliently loyal to the Democratic Party and the Democrats don't just talk about giving the black community uh, handouts they talk about uh, anti-white things which more or less uh, are used as rationalization for why things are so bad in the Afro American sphere uh, I think it's it's much deeper than just money. Oh, yeah, it is deep, and that's just one manifestation. I remember after uh, Donald Trump w- was elected, uh, a liberal white Jewish friend of mine was, was driving down the street, and he just felt a surge that he, he just didn't want to put up with the, the rantings of some black woman that he, he, he heard. It's like, you know, we're, we're back in power, and you don't have power anymore. You know, Barack Obama is, is gone. So people... Every living organism wants to create an environment that is most suited for their thriving. So many, you know, black people felt a tremendous surge of, of power, and they just felt good when Barack Obama took office. When when if, when blacks vote cohesively for the left, they are perhaps better able to, you know, maximize uh, the the shaping of a type of environment that they want to live in, and they get a a narrative that's fed back to them where blacks are at the center of the universe. So for, for, for the people on the left, for the Democratic Party, you can't talk about almost anything in America without first asking how will it affect black people. So whether it's crime, law enforcement, education, public transport, uh, zoning, Everything is about how will this affect black people? Black people rule the Democratic Party. Like, why would you not vote for your group that rules, you know, the dominant political party in America? Blacks run the Democratic Party. Blacks dominate the Democratic Party. It was the black vote that got Joe Biden over the top to win the the Democratic nomination. So people want to feel good. People want to feel powerful. And due to the homogeneity of the, the black vote, you know, blacks are the single most powerful element of the Democratic Party. Why would they leave that? Mm-hmm. Very, very uh, good way of putting it. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because obviously this is an issue, the whole black identity thing, which it, political identity, social identity, uh, racial identity, obviously, so on and so forth, which American uh, so-called society is not getting away from anytime soon. So dealing with at least this element of it is is, is highly important. Uh, I, I, I would imagine that a lot of people on the American right – are not so much interested in uh, making America great again in terms of making America what it once was. At this point, I think perhaps their their desires are much more humble and realistic. It seems to me that they probably just want things to be more functional, the economy to be better, inflation to be under control, obviously violent crime to be dealt with, among many other uh, issues. Uh, What do you think about what most people on the American right uh, want today, Luke? Well, uh, the the primary right-wing incentive or or impulse is order and minimizing contagion and and it's been that way for thousands of years and it is still operating so that manifests itself differently in different circumstances so right now it's a concern about crime it's a concern about immigration it's a concern about the the trashing of white christian america i i think pushing back against like the, the transsexual and degenerate sexual uh, agendas because people just want to feel safe and, and clean and they just see spiraling disorder and spiraling contagion. So monkeypox, right? Uh, AIDS, uh, spiraling numbers of sexually transmitted diseases and then a media fixation on the most important thing about the monkeypox story is that we don't stigmatize people who participate in gay orgies like a regular american is you know sickened by by that when they hear doctors talking about doing transsexual operations as a great money maker for this university hospital because it requires a lot of follow-up care like when when people hear about this stuff they're just sickened people want what safety and they want order and they want to reduce contagion now this transsexual thing uh which you had mentioned before and you just mentioned again the whole trans rights thing this has been quite recent it came about immediately after uh, hodges which legalized gay marriage needless to mention and it uh it is something which is now for the left next to blackness all consuming uh why do you suppose this trans rights thing came so quickly and why do you think it's found such an audience like over the last like five years basically the amount of people who suddenly discovered they're trans has spiked drastically i mean Obviously, there had to be some problem there beforehand that something like this is just able to swoop in and make such a, a remarkable, remarkably awful difference. Yeah, I mean, remember, remember past satanic panics in the United States yeah. or past, you know, witchcraft, witch uh, panics, or remember the recovered memory uh, delusions where all these you know, upstanding citizens and schools and churches were accused of carrying out you know, satanic ritual child abuse, and it was based on recovered memories that turned out to be mm-hmm. nonsense. So it, it, life is hard. A lot of people are unhappy, and if they can find an explanation for their unhappiness and offered a solution to their unhappiness, it's like, oh, you're really a girl inside. I mean, that's incredibly tempting. Or if someone can help you recover a memory about how your father used to molest you or the priest would, would molest you, like recovered memories and satanic you know, panics and, and transgender panics, 
people want an easy way out and whether it's like some scientology offering to audit you for for thetons or if you just believe in jesus you'll be safe forever and you'll be very happy or if you just observe the torah then your problems will be solved like a third of the population i would say is is pretty unhappy and a substantial portion of that third is going to be highly amenable to offered solutions particularly if they are regarded as cool also there's an inherent tendency on the left to want to continually badger people educate people bully people against being ignorant and and bigoted and sticking to traditional folk ways so this is the latest manifestation and there will never be an end to that. There will never be an end to the left-wing compulsion to try to improve people away from ignorance and tradition and, and folkways. Mm -hmm. it, it's something. I, it really is something. Uh, it, I, what, what's interesting is that children are being trusted to make these decisions effectively about uh, the, the rest of their life. I, 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 it, uh, it used to be, I don't know if it still is, that you couldn't even get a vasectomy, basically, unless you were 21 years of age or older. But now you have these people beginning to take gender transitioning, quote-unquote, therapies uh, before they're even 10 years old. Uh, having Giving this sort of latitude to children, I think, is inherently destructive, and it shouldn't be a left or right issue to see that it is uh, something which should not be had. What's your take on this? Yeah, I think there's also something quintessentially American, quintessentially liberal in it, in that you get to choose your own identity. So in America, it's perfectly acceptable to convert to Judaism or to convert to atheism or to become gay. Like you get to you know, choose your identity. That's like a very American thing, like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So in British culture, if you watch British drama, it's much more about learning your obligations. And in America, it's much more about following your bliss, like discovering who, who you really are. And so there's something like quintessentially American in this trans mania. And then there's something quintessentially liberal in that liberalism holds that we have a that we where we have kind of a buffet identity so i'm not liberal i'm much more medieval so i feel like if there's something going on in the next house let's say there is consensual incest between adults going on in the next house that bothers me i feel like that harms me uh gay marriage i feel like it harms me uh doing away with the the ban on uh, out homosexuals in the military, I feel it harms me because I have a conception of the armed forces being a heterosexual institution. So I don't feel like I live in a buffered identity. I feel like everything that's going on around me is penetrating me and it affects me. But, but liberalism developed really out of the Protestant uh, Christianity is much more of a buffered identity where you have autonomous strategic individuals, you know, rashly rationally making up their minds about what is true and good and beautiful and how they want to lead their life. As a someone who's much more medieval, I'm much more skeptical of the, the powers of human reason. I, I don't think that people are primarily buffered, strategic, autonomous individuals making you know rational choices. So it, it comes back to these two fundamental ways of experiencing the world. So think about back in the, the 16th century if you're a lord you're the lord of your manor and you could you could uh, break wind you could belch you could 
say whatever you wanted at your dinner table. Then when the social political circumstances change so that you needed to be at court to maintain your status, you couldn't belch at court. You couldn't say whatever you wanted. You had to measure everything you said at court with how would it affect someone? Were you appropriately deferential? You would have to be constantly attuned to what was going on at court. So liberals have much more of a court identity. They want us to be constantly attuned to what's going on for other people. How will that make the retarded feel? How will that make the transgendered feel? How will that make homosexuals feel? How will that make black people or Jews feel? So it's a, a court morality. Tr people who are not liberal have much more of a traditional way of approaching life. So it's much more of a sense that, you know, we're all, you know, kind of lord of the manor in, a, in our own home. And therefore we can say what we want. We can, we can belch if we want to. We don't have to weigh all our utterances up against how they affect other people. A very interesting way of putting it. I had not thought of that distinction which you made between uh, manorial and court morality, but uh, it, it, that is a very fascinating way of putting it, no question. Uh, now, I think, you know, as we obviously are beginning to wind things down here, unfortunately, it does beg the question of why the left is simply so appealing to so many people whereas the right is not. Because if you look at, like I said, this explosion in left-wing uh, politics among young women uh, in the last over the last very few years, obviously there's an appeal that the left has that the right doesn't. And I don't know exactly what this appeal is, but I think perhaps Luke might have some thoughts on the matter. Anything to share? Yeah, the, the left dominates all our major institutions. So if you go to university, of course, it will make your life a lot easier if you're on the left. If you're in any of the professions, your life will be a lot easier if you're on the left. If you're interested in media or you simply like to, to watch TV, your life will be a lot easier on your left. It does you harm. It's painful if you're not on the left and you watch TV and movies because everything that you hold to be sacred is frequently urinated on. So conservatives understandably feel a, a sense of cultural oppression and Ronnie Goodman wrote a great book on this on the conservative case for cultural oppression he's a man of the left but he uses you know left-wing analyses to to show the, the legitimate reasons why conservatives feel oppressed in America so it's not the the explicit ideological appeal of the left it's that the left dominates our institutions it dominates how we are supposed to speak you're going to be much more effective working in a corporation if you're on the left because you have internalized th that uh, court you know way of being where you're constantly measuring what you say to you know how it affects you're going to do much more effectively in you know navigating life among America's major institutions if you take on this strategic autonomous buffered sense of self where it doesn't matter you know if the neighbors have uh, a gay marriage or if you know the neighbor has has trans you know children it, it doesn't matter because you have this buffered strategic autonomous sense of self where we can all just rationally make our choices and you look down on ignorance and traditional you know superstitions and folkways so given that the incentives are strongly aligned with every thinking person facing many more incentives to be on the left than the right it, it doesn't surprise me at all now, there is the question of why this impacts women, at least very recently, more than men, this attraction to the left in the U.S. Uh, any ideas to why that might be? 
Yeah, because women have always been much more sensitive to social feedback. So women are far less likely to color outside the lines. So women do have always done better than, than boys in school. But if you ask teachers and professors who their best students are, it's almost always guys because women are always very careful to color inside the lines in school. They want to meet the approval of the teacher. They don't want to fall out of fashion with other people. And so women are particularly attuned to, you know, the left runs all our institutions. It is socially unacceptable to say anything racist, sexist, transphobic, uh, Islamophobic. They pick up these cues and they have much more of a, of a court morality. Women constantly moderate what they say by what could be the implications on other people, men are much more likely to belch, to fart, and to you know say whatever it is that they're feeling. Men act much more like the the, the lord of the manor. W- women act much more like uh, people are caught. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's very true and, and very, very, very interesting because obviously it's ramifications far beyond the realm of uh, partisan politics. Uh, what do you suppose will happen over the next several years because there's going to be a lot of guys who are looking for romantic uh you know uh partnership but a lot of gals who are not interested in anyone who doesn't share their politics are going to be dismissing these guys and then of course you have the decline in heterosexuality among females although i don't know how legitimate that is because i'm not of the opinion that anyone could change their sexual orientation so but anyhow uh well what what do you think will happen with a lot of these guys who aren't gonna be able to find female accompaniment or do you think maybe somehow they will be able to because if they're not obviously this is going to cause an extreme problem uh in so-called society in the united states going forward yeah we have a an extreme problem with with loneliness for among the, the reasons that you just mentioned but those women who you know turn up their noses at at traditional guys they're going to find it much more difficult to to get married to find a guy who will who will stand by them and so they are not going to be able to reproduce so i, I really like the, the framework of evolution so if a, an adaptation is not adaptive it's going to be out competed by adaptations that are adaptive so generally speaking the religious have more children and those people who are adopting gay identities, trans identities, or turning up their noses at at forming forming a marriage with, with a guy who's traditional in any way, those people are simply going to disappear from the gene pool. True, but there are a lot of guys who are going to be wanting a relationship with a woman and they're not going to be able to find one. And as history shows, when guys aren't able to find a romantic outlet, they channel their energy into some pretty destructive endeavors. But, I mean, on the other hand, this is true of a large number of guys in Japan, and they're not going around, you know, shooting people. So I don't think it's necessarily the end of civilization. It's a reduction in civilization. It's a problem. But uh, there there are enough women who do want to be with, with a man. Definitely we were having a decline in marriage, particularly since gay marriage makes marriage much less appealing to men. It, men are not naturally attuned to to marriage in the first place. Now that we've got you know gays celebrating marriage, it it's probably even decreasing uh, the the interest of of men in getting married. Also because divorce laws are so you know anti male, so we, we've definitely got serious problems. We've got a steady decline in the marriage rate. We've got you know growing levels of homelessness, uh, hopelessness, and you know 
bachelorhood and you know men who are having a hard time finding a, a woman so we have these big problems but there is a community where guys can go to where they're much more likely to meet a trad wife and that's a religious community uh, yeah, it depends upon the community, but certainly, uh, although obviously even in some of these communities, they don't find what they're looking for, which uh, is just because of, I guess, supply and demand. There are uh, there, there There's a great demand for these, uh, at least seemingly trad women, and uh, the supply of them is not great enough to meet the demand. So it's, it's interesting to say the absolute least. And we are really beginning, we are not beginning, it's been going on for a little while, but we are really winding things down now, I am. Sorry to say it has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Aloof, uh, on the, uh, as, as we bring things to an end here tonight, what do you think will become of the Democratic Party going forward? We talked about the future of the American right and the GOP, but what do you think will become of the Democrats? What sort of situation do you think they're in? Well, it looks like they have the, the, the whip hand here, but circumstances are constantly changing. So just like what you see with the Green Party in Germany, they suddenly are you know, reducing their many of their environmental commitments because they're, they're so committed to Ukraine. In, in California, for example, we had to fire up some gas-powered power plants during a recent heat wave. So even though California has been run by Democrats, the state still works. So... That which cannot continue will not continue. Eventually, the transmania is going to diminish. Those those aspects of the, the democratic agenda that are just cannot continue, such as defunding the police, will eventually reduce. Democrats don't like crime. Like uh, liberals don't like high rates of murder and rape. So Democrats, by and large, don't like homelessness. So when certain liberal policies are proven to be failures, then liberals will adapt those, those policies. So when big government became unfashionable, you know, Bill Clinton ran on a platform, you know, the age of big government is over. So I feel confident that that which cannot continue will not continue and that those adaptations of the Democratic Party that are maladaptive, such as defund the police, uh, pushing transmania, I think will eventually diminish and be overtaken by more adaptive responses. And I think that for thousands of years, we will have right and left wing uh, responses, inclinations to, to stimuli. And in some circumstances, the right wing approach will be more useful and other circumstances, the left wing one will. Uh, this is something that, I mean, we've been talking about the Ukraine just a little bit, but in the West, it's not just a U.S. thing. The media has really, and the governments have really hyped up the Ukrainian government as basically the bastion of uh, truth, justice, and the Western, quote-unquote, way. Uh, why do you think there has been this idolization of Zelensky, uh, the Kiev administration, and so on, uh, and the full-on demonization of Russia all the while ignoring uh, some truly egregious things done by the Ukraine, not just since the Russian invasion began, but uh, during the years leading up to the Russian invasion, it was basically the Ukrainian government so far that they were able to give Moscow the pretense of justification for the quote-unquote special operation. Well, if you know anything about anything, it's always stunning to read the news and, and notice the overwhelming emotional uniformity of the news on, on almost any topic, whether it's CNN or the LA Times or the Washington Post or the Miami Herald, there's almost always on any major story, there's very quickly an agreement on the 
sort of emotional tone that you want to take with this story. So Ukraine versus Russia is plucky Ukraine fighting, you know, big, bad Russia. But it's not just that story. Almost all stories are the same way because people in every profession, they don't want to fall out of step with other members of their profession. They just instinctively carry on the the worldview of the, the more prestigious members of their profession. So, yeah, it is stunning to see the uniform nature of Ukraine coverage. But if you think more critically, you'll see the uniform nature of almost all coverage. It's not just Ukraine versus Russia. This is, is throughout the news. There's very quickly a certain emotional tone that is, is taken to a story. For example, on the day that uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated, Tom Wolfe went out into the streets of New York and asked New Yorkers, who do you think did it? And uh, the Puerto Ricans, you know, maybe they, they blame the Anglicans and, you know, white people blame black people. And like the, all these different racial groups were blaming other racial groups for the John F. Kennedy assassination. Guess what? That story never saw the light of day because it's not the, the right emotional tone. Like So the news is constantly telling us we should feel sad about this. We should feel hopeful about this. We should feel excited about this. We should feel scared about this. It's kind of stunning how uniform the emotional coverage is of almost every major story, not just Ukraine and Russia. Will be definitely interesting to see how the media handles the outcome of the Russo-Ukrainian crisis. Uh, I think obviously Russia is going to be much wealthier for it, but uh, we'll have to see as to what exactly happens. Uh, but yeah, I think the West just needed something to, after COVID to distract itself from its problems, and uh, that thing happened to be uh, this Ukrainian uh, situation. Yeah, I mean, it feels good. I mean, I 100% I emotionally support Ukraine. 100% it, it, emotionally, I feel good when Ukraine, you know, stands, stands up to Russia. The rational part of me thinks that us, you know, subsidizing Ukraine is dramatically increasing the odds of a conflagration in Europe that could could go nuclear and is a bad idea. But I 100% emotionally understand why people side with the, the underdog. I mean, I love virtually every underdog sports movie that I've ever seen. It's like the one genre where I'm never disappointed. And, and so too with the news, when you, can, when you can portray a plucky underdog, almost everybody loves that, that type of story. Certainly, and uh, although now you, the Ukraine has received so much military aid from the West that uh, I, I don't know that it's well, it definitely is the underdog in terms of its manpower. But I think that in terms of uh, defense technology, it it is at least on par with Russia at this point. Right, like in some ways, you know, David was not the underdog versus Goliath. You know, David had a slingshot; Goliath didn't have a slingshot. So it all depends on the perspective you take. So. I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. You know, I can get myself, you know, riled up. Oh, the, you know, the refs are against us or, you know, they are that. Like to, to be a member of any group requires a sense of victimization. Like if you're an identifying Jew or an identifying Christian, you have a keen sense of how Jews, Christians have been oppressed. So it's just built into the human condition to uh, have others that you hate and to 
you know, have have a you know blinkered view of, of your own group. Like we're all wired to be very good at spotting when other people try to manipulate us because we did not evolve to be gullible. We wouldn't be here if we were easily manipulated. On the other hand, we're all wired to be terrible at spotting the flaws in our own thinking because it's not evolutionarily adaptive to be constantly, you know, questioning yourself. It's much more adaptive to go around with a great sense of confidence in your understanding of, of the world. That it is. And uh, on that very interesting note, we shall conclude tonight's show. Luke, it has been too long since you showed up, but very glad to have you on tonight. And I hope to have you on again in the very near future. Thank you, Joseph. I have enjoyed it. Absolutely. I've enjoyed it as well. I hope everyone watching this has enjoyed it. It has, I think, truly been a fascinating discussion that went in many different directions, each and every single one of them worthwhile. Uh, So everybody, please do take it easy. Stay safe. Be well. If you liked uh, this episode and want to support the show, you may do so at the link below. And uh, cheers. Bye-bye.